Hello, ghost addicts. Thank you. Welcome to the show. Today, we have a terrifying ghost story for you. Yes, we are reading The Empty House by Algernon Blackwood. Oh, yes. And the music today is provided for by Grammy-nominated composer of ambient, Celtic, and electronic music, Catherine Newt. Please check out her um, beautiful music at CatherineDuke.com. It's in the summary. If you'd like to give us a five-star review, we'd be so grateful. And if you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, that will help support us. And if you'd like to make a donation, um, PayPal me anonymous content or buy me coffee sneakies. So let's start the story of the empty, the empty house. Okay, great. So I'm just going to give you a real quick little overview of the plot. So Jim Shorthouse is a gentleman who was asked by his elderly spinster sister, Aunt Julia, and Aunt Julia calls on her, Jim Shorthouse, to spend the night with her in a haunted house that, of course, is empty. And it is a house that is most ordinary looking in a row of identical houses in the square, but they say it is so disagreeable that no one should stay in the home for long. And the hauntings date back a century when a murder was committed by a jealous stableman and a fit of rage, the jealous stableman went upstairs into the servants' quarters during the night, chased a girl downstairs to the landing and threw her over the banister stairs. Oh, so Shorthouse is summoned by his Aunt Julia at half past 10 to the house number 13 and the square. Ooh, feeling a little nervous, everyone? Oh, yeah, the empty house. So in certain houses, like most persons, manage somehow to proclaim at once their character for evil. In the case of the letter, no particular feature need betray them. They may boast an open countenance and an ingenious smile, and yet a little of their company leaves the unalterable conviction that there is something radically amiss with their being, that they are evil. <laughs> really nearly they seem to communicate an atmosphere of secret and a wicked thoughts, which makes those in their immediate neighborhood shrink from them as from a thing diseased. Perhaps with houses, the same principle is operative, and it is the aroma of evil deeds committed under a particular roof long after the actual doers have passed away that makes the goose flesh come and the hair on the back of your neck rise. Something of the original passion of the evildoer and of the horror felt by his victim enters the heart of the innocent watcher and he becomes suddenly a conscious of tingling nerves, creeping skin, and a chill of his blood. He is terror-stricken without apparent cause. There was manifestly nothing in the external appearance of this particular house, number 13, to bear out the tales of the horror that was rumored to reign within. It was neither lonely nor unkempt. It stood crowded into a corner of the square and looked exactly like the other houses on the either side of it. 
the same number of windows as its neighbors, the same balcony overlooking the gardens, and the same white steps leading to the heavy black front porch. Mm, that's a sign, black front porch. And in the rear, there was the same narrow strip of green with neat box borders running up to the wall that divided it from the backs of the adjoining houses. Apparently, too, the number of chimney pots on the roof was the same, the breadth and the angles of the eaves, and even the height of the dirty area railings. So similar houses, identical. And yet this house in the square that seemed precisely similar to its 50 ugly neighbors was a matter of fact entirely different, horribly different. Wherein lay this marked invisible difference is impossible to say. It cannot be ascribed wholly to the imagination because persons who had spent time in the house knowing nothing of the facts had declared positively positively that certain rooms were so disagreeable that they would rather die than enter them again and that the atmosphere of the whole house produced them symptoms of genuine terror while the series of innocent tenants who had tried to live in it and been forced to decamp to the shortest possible notice was indeed little less than a scandal in the town oh my 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 when the short house arrived to pay a weekend visit to his Aunt Julia in her little house on the seafront at the other end of town, he found her charged to brim with mystery and excitement. He'd only received her telegram that morning, and he had come anticipating boredom. <clears throat> but the moment he touched her hand and kissed her apple-skin-wrinkled cheeks, he caught the first wave of her electrical condition. The impression deepened when he learned that there were to be no other visitors that he had been telegraphed for with a very special objective. Something was in the wind, and something would doubtlessly bear fruit. For this elderly spinster aunt with a mania for psychological research had brains as well as willpower, and by hook or crook she usually managed to accomplish her ends. The revelation made was made soon after tea, when she sidled up close to him as they paced slowly along the seafront in the dusk on a long walk. I've got the keys, she announced in a delightful yet half-awesome voice. Got the keys to the house till Monday, Shorehouse. The keys of the bathing machine, or he asked innocently, looking from the sea to the town. Nothing brought her so quickly to the point of feigning stupidity. Neither, she whispered. I've got the keys of the haunted house in the square, and I'm going there tonight. Shorthouse was conscious of the slightest possible tremor down his back. He dropped his teasing tone. With something her voice and manner thrilled him, she was in earnest. But, dear aunt, you can't go to that home alone. That's why I wired for you, said Aunt Julia. Shorthouse turned to look at her. The ugly line, enigmatical face was alive with excitement. There was a glow of genuine enthusiasm around her face like a halo. Her eyes shone. He caught another wave of her excitement and a second tremor, more marked than the first accompaniment. Thanks, Aunt Julia, he said politely. Thanks awfully. I shall accompany you indeed. I should not dare to quite alone, do, to go alone. She went on raising her voice. But with you, I should enjoy it immensely. You're afraid of nothing. I know that. Oh, thanks so much, Julia. Is anything 
unlikely to happen in this spooky haunted house. A great deal has happened, she whispered, though it's been most cleverly hushed up. Three tenants have come and gone in the last few months, and the house is said to be empty for good now. In spite of himself, Shorthouse became interested. His aunt was so very much in earnest. The house is very old indeed, and the story, an unpleasant one, dates a long way back. It has nothing to do with the murder committed by a jealous stableman. Oh, <laughs> it has to do with the murder committed by a jealous stableman, she said, who had some affair with a servant in the house. Oh, and one night he managed to secrete himself in the cellar. And when everyone was asleep, did you know that this guy crept upstairs to the female servant's quarters, then chased this poor innocent girl down into the next landing, and before anyone could come down to rescue her, her bodily was thrown over the banister into the hall below. My word! And the stableman! He was caught, I believe, and hanged for murder, but it all happened a century ago, and I was not able to get more details of the story. Shorthouse now felt interest thoroughly aroused. But though he was not particularly nervous for himself, he hesitated a little on his aunt's account. On one condition, he said at length. Nothing will prevent my going, she said firmly. But I may well hear your condition, my boy. That you guarantee your power of self-control if anything really horrible happens, you know, old girl. I mean, that you are sure you won't get too frightened. Jim, she said scornfully. I am not young, I know, nor are my nerves, but with you I should be afraid of nothing in the world. Oh, this of course settled it for Shorehouse, who had no pretensions of being other than a very ordinary young man, and appeal to his vanity was irresistible. He agreed to go with his aunt, of course. Instinctively, by a short, sort of subconscious preparation, Shorehouse kept himself and his forces well in hand the whole evening, compelling it at a competitive reserve of control by that nameless inward process of gradually putting all the emotion away and turning the key upon them, a process difficult to describe, but wonderfully effective, as all men who have lived through severe trials of the inner man well understand. Later it stood in him good stead. But it was half past ten when they stood in the hall, well at the glare of the friendly lamps and still surrounding by comforting human influences that he had to make his first call upon the store of collected strength. For once the door was closed, and he saw the deserted silent street stretching away white in the moonlight before them. It came to him clearly that the real test that night would be dealing with two fears instead of one. He would have to carry his aunt's fear as well as his own, and as he glanced down at her, sphinx-like continence, and realized that it must assume no pleasant aspect and the rush of real terror. He felt satisfied with only one thing in the whole adventure, that he had confidence in his own willpower to stand against any shock that might come. So slowly they walked down the empty streets of the town. A bright autumn moon silvered the roofs, casting down deep shadows. There was no breath of wind, and the trees in the formal garden by the seafront watched them silently as they passed along. To his aunt's occasional remarks, Shorthouse made no reply, realizing that she was simply surrounding herself with mental buffers, saying ordinary things to present herself thinking of extraordinary things. Few windows showed light, and from scarcely a single chimney came smoke or sparks. 
Shorthouse had already begun to notice everything, even the smallest details. Presently, they stopped at the street corner and looked at the name on the side of the house full in the moonlight, and with one accord, but without remark, turned into the square and crossed over to the side of it that lay in the shadow. The number of the house is 13, whispered a voice on his side, and neither of them had made the obvious references, but passed across the broad street of moonlight that began to march up the pavement in silence. <gasps> oh my gosh. So, it was halfway, it was about halfway up the square that Shorthouse felt an arm slip quietly but insignificantly into his own and knew then that their adventure had begun in earnest and his, that his companion was already yielding imperatively to the influences against them. My aunt indeed would need my support. A few minutes later, they stopped before a tall, narrow house that rose before them into the night ugly in shape and painted in dingy white, shutterless windows without blinds, stared upon them, shining here and there in the moonlight. There were weather streaks in the walls and cracks in the paint, and the balcony bolts out from the first floor a little unnaturally. But beyond this generally forlorn appearance of an unoccupied house, there was nothing at the first sight to single out this particular mansion for the evil character had almost certainly acquired in reputation. Taking a look over their shoulders to make sure they had not been followed, they went boldly up the steps of the house number 13. Oh. And Shorthouse and his aunt walked up the steps and stood against a huge black door that fronted them forbiddingly. But the fervent wave of nervousness was now upon them and Shorthouse fumbled a long time with the key before he could fit it into the lock at all. For a moment, if truth were told, if truth were told, and they both hoped it would not, for they were prey to various unpleasant emotions as they stood there on the threshold of their ghostly adventure, Shorthouse shuffling, shuffling with the key and hampered by the steady weight on his arm of his aunt, certainly felt the solemnity of the moment. It was as if the whole world, for all experience, seemed at that instance concentrated on his own consciousness, were listening to the grafting noise of that key, and the key he had in his hand. It's like, why wouldn't the door open? And a stray puff of wind wandered into the empty street, woke a momentary rustling of the winds behind them. But otherwise, this rattling of the keys was the only sound audible, and at last it turned in that the lock, the heavy door swung open and revealed a yawning gulf of darkness beyond. With that last glance, the moonlit square, they passed quickly in, and the door slammed behind them with a roar that echoed prodigiously through the empty halls and passages. <gasps> oh! But instantly, with the echoes, another sound made itself heard, and Aunt Julia leaned suddenly so heavily upon her, her nephew that he was taken a step backwards to save himself from falling. And men had coughed close behind them, so close that they seemed that they must have actually been by his side in the darkness. What was that? What? With the possibility of this practical joke on this mind, Shorthouse was at once swung his heavy stick in the direction of the sound, of the laughter. But there was nothing there, nothing more solid than the air. He heard his aunt give a little gasp behind him. <gasps> There's someone there. There's someone here, she whispered. I heard him. I distinctly heard him. Be quiet, aunt, he said sternly. It was nothing but the noise of the front door. Oh, 
Get a light, quick, she said, fumbling with a box of matches, opened it upside down and let them fall, and with a rattle onto the stone floor. The sound, however, was not repeated, and there was no evidence of retreating footsteps. There was no one there. I know I heard a sound. In another minute, they had the candle burning, using the empty end of a cigar case as a holder. And when the first flare had died down, he held the impromptu lamp aloft and surveyed the scene. Hmm, dear old girl, I've got the lamp and I'm looking into the house. And it was dreary enough in all conscience, for there is nothing more desolate in all the abodes of men than an unfurnished house and dimly lit, silent and forsaken, and yet tenanted by rumor with the memories of evil and ghostly stories of violence. They were standing in a wide hallway. On their left was the open doors of a spacious dining room. In the front hall ran ever narrowing into a long, dark passage that led apparently to the top of the kitchen stairs. A broad, uncarpeted staircase rose in a sweep before them, everywhere draped in shadows, except for a single spot about halfway up where the moonlight came in through the window and fell on a bright patch on the boards. This shaft of light shed a faint radiance above and below, lending to the objects within its reach a misty outline that was infinitely more suggestive and ghostly than complete darkness. Oh, it looked in disarray, dust, and just left to just become dilapidated. Filtered moonlight always seemed to paint faces on the surrounding gloom. And as Shorthouse peered up the wells of the darkness and thought of the countless empty rooms and passages in the upper part of the old house, he caught himself longing again for the safety of the moonlit square or the cozy, bright drawing room that they had left the hour before at his aunt's house. Then realizing that these thoughts were dangerous, he thrust them away again and summoned all his energy and nerves for concentration on the present. Aunt Julia, he said loudly and severely, we must now go through the house from top to bottom and make a thorough search, don't you agree? Oh, yes, Shorehouse, I agree completely. The echoes of his voice died away slowly over all the buildings in an intense silence that followed him as he turned and looked at her. In the dark dim light, in the candlelight, he saw that her face was already ghastly pale, but she dropped his arm for a moment and said in a whisper, stepping close in front of him, I agree. We must be sure there's no one hiding. That's the first thing. She spoke with evident effort as he looked at her with admiration. You feel quite sure of yourself, auntie. It's not too late to turn back. I think so, she whispered. Quite sure. Only one thing. What's that? You must never leave me alone for an instant. Oh, dear aunt, as long as you understand that any sound or appearances must be investigated at once, for to hesitate means to admit fear. That is fatal. Agreed, she said, a little shaky after a moment's of hesitation. I shall try. Arm in arm, Shorehouse and his aunt, holding the dripping candle in the stick, while his aunt carried a cloak over his shoulders, figures of utter comedy to all but themselves as they began a systematic search, walking through the house one room at a time, steadily walking on tiptoe and shading the candle least it should betray their presence through the shutterless windows that they went first into the big dining room. The dining room was grand and large. 
but there was not a stick of furniture to be seen. Bare walls, ugly mantelpieces, and empty grates stared at them. Everything they felt resented their intrusion, watching them, as it were, with veiled eyes. Whispers followed them. Shadows flitted noiselessly to the right and left. Something seemed ever at their back, watching, waiting an opportunity to do them injury. There was an inevitable sense that operations, which went on when the room was empty, had been temporarily suspended till they were very well out of the way again. The whole dark interior of the old building seemed to become malignant presence that rose up, wanting them to desist and mind their own business. Every moment, the strain on the nerves increased. Go back. Go back. Get out. Get out, the house seemed to say. Out of the gloomy dining room, they passed through the large folding doors into a sort of library or smoking room, wrapped equally in silence, darkness, and dust, and from they regained the hall to the top of the back stairs. Here, a pitch-black tunnel opened before them into the lower regions, and it must be confessed they hesitated, but only for a minute. With the worst of the night still to come, it was essential to turn from nothing, and Julia stumbled at the top step of the dark descent, ill lit by the flickering candle, and even Shorthouse felt at least half of the decision go out of his legs. Come on, old girl, he said preparatorily, and his voice ran on and lost itself in the dark, empty spaces below. I'm coming, Shorthouse, she faltered, catching his arm with unnecessarily violence. They went a little unsteadily down some stone steps, a cold, damp air meeting them in the face, closed and malodorous. The kitchen into which the stairs led along in a narrow passage was large, with a lofty ceiling. Several doors opened out of it, some into cupboards and empty jars still standing on the shelves, and others into horribly little ghostly black offices, each colder and less inviting than the last room that they went into. Black beetles scurried over the floor, and once when they knocked against a deal table standing in a corner something about the size of a cap jumped down with a rush and fled scampered across the stone floor into the darkness <laughs> every there was a sense of recent occupation and impression of sadness and gloom be careful something's there maybe a old rat oh yes there's always rats in old homes just a old rat or an old cat oh mind your nerves old girl mind your nerves oh yes sure house yes absolutely Steady on, girl, steady on, girl. So they made their way, leaving the main kitchen. They went next to towards the scullery. The door was standing ajar, and as they pushed it open to its full extent, Aunt Julia uttered a piercing scream, ah! which she instantly tried to stifle by placing her hand over her mouth. Oh, how awful. How awful indeed. Yes, yeah, she screamed. And she screamed. And her nephew, her nephew, as she screamed, uh, leaving the kitchen, she stood there motionless for the space of a single second. Her, she saw, stood, she saw a figure, the figure of a woman with disheveled hair and wild Wild mannerisms. Wild mannerisms. The woman's figure had disheveled hair and wildly staring eyes, and her face was terrified and white as death. 
She stood there motionless for the space of a single second. Then the candle flickered and the apparition of the woman was gone. Gone ugly and the door framed nothing but empty darkness. Only the beastly jumping candlelight. Oh, it just went out, he said quickly in a voice that sounded like someone else and was only half under control. Come on, Anne. There's nothing here. He dragged her forward. With a clattering of feet and a great appearance of bondness, they went on. But over his body and skin moved as if crawling ants covered it. And he knew by the weight on his arm that he was supplying the force of locomotion for two. The scullery was cold and bare and empty, more like a large prison cell than anything else. They went around it, tried the door and into the yard and the windows, but found them all fastened securely. His aunt moved beside him like a person in a dream. Her eyes were tightly shut, and she seemed merely to follow the pressure of his arm. He cur her courage filled him with amazement. At the same time, he noticed that the old, certain old chains had come over her face, a chain that somehow evaded his power of analyst. There's nothing here, my dear aunt. Nothing here at all. Let's go upstairs and see the rest of the house. Then we'll choose our room to wait up in. She followed him obediently, keeping close to his side, and they locked the kitchen door behind them. It is a relief to get up again. In the hall, there was more light than before. The moon had traveled a little further down the stairs. Cautiously, they began to go up in the dark vault of the upper house, the board creaking under their weight. On the first floor, they found the large double drawing rooms. Oh, in search of which revealed nothing. Here was no sign of furniture or recent occupancy. Nothing but dust, neglect, and shadows. They opened the big folding doors between the front and the back drawing rooms and then came out again to the landing and went upstairs. They had not gone more than a dozen steps when they both simultaneously stopped to listen, look into each other's eyes with a new apparition across the flickering candle flame. <gasps> this ghastly apparition. Stay tuned for part two of the empty house.